Having lost his mother, father, brother, and grandfather, the friends and foes of his youth, his beloved teacher Bernard Kornblum, his city, his history, his home. The usual charge leveled against comic books that they offered merely an easy escape from reality seemed to Joe actually to be a powerful argument on their behalf. He had escaped in his life from ropes, chains, boxes, bags, and crates, from handcuffs and shackles, from countries and regimes, from the arms of a woman who loved him, from crashed airplanes and an opiate addiction, and from an entire frozen continent intent on causing his death. The escape from reality was, he felt, especially right after the war, a worthy challenge. Welcome to the Big Readcast. I'm Joel. I'm Bill. Uh, If you haven't joined us before, this is a podcast about books over 500 pages. That's the the only real gimmick, and we actually break it all the time. (laughs) Um, We did not break it for this last book that we read, Um, a book that kind of somehow, (laughs) I feel like, uh, contains many of the previous books we have read, ranging from magic and artist partnerships and ice age sorry ice age antarctic um, expedition survivals um it's the book that won the pulitzer in 2000 the amazing adventures of cavalier and clay by michael shabon it's a book we both liked and we're going to talk a lot about it hopefully since we always talk too long about everything but um like everyone else in the world right now if you know our attention has been continually pulled away from such things as happy escapist reading. Um, 2020 has been a crazy year, of course, and I I don't want to add to kind of the various um, corporate or Twitter pablum going out there right now on politics that I either don't understand or shouldn't be talking about or whatever else, but it... Bill and I kind of talked about it, and it did feel uh, disingenuous not to open kind of our first podcast since March um, without talking about politics to some extent, um, if only because actually one of us, Bill, you lovely, beautiful human, um, has <laughs> some <laughs> has some connection to the, uh, to the actual legal system. And a lot of stuff going on with protests and Black Lives Matters and kind of what I would, you know, what I, uh, what I've taken to calling disaggregating the policing function because of a single paper I read, <laughs> um, but which everyone else is calling defunding the police. All of these things, um, I don't know, they've been on everyone's mind lately. And I, I feel like a podcast is a much better forum for talking about it than, let's say, Twitter, which I'm basically off of right now. Um, but more, Bill, I, I actually, I, th- I told you this in the preamble, I kinda, and I kind of wanted to save the conversation for the podcast, because you're one of the few people I, I actually talk to about this stuff, at length at least, and what I really wanted to ask you was kind of like, from your position as a public defender, you know, without assigning you <laughs> too much kind of godhead authority, but I was just curious, like, what's what's been standing out to you lately with all of this talk about the carceral system and, you know, abolish prisons and so forth, if anything kind of was maybe new to your eyes that would be not seen by me or something. So obviously there's a there's a lot going on. I also should be clear, I've been a public defender for six months. I've had an interest in criminal defense for some years, and I've been... But, you know, I don't have any sort of tremendous epistemic privilege here. Also, I'm a right. public defender in a rural town in northwestern Minnesota, which is a different kind of job than 
like in Minneapolis or in Chicago or something like that. Right. But a couple of things I have noticed is I am, of course, I mean, as somebody who deliberately chose to be a public defender, generally on board with these sorts of projects, I think um, whatever verb we want here, defunding, disaggregating, abolish the police, whatever you want to call it, I'm generally on board with that. Um, and it's comforting to see a lot of people, including people who you might not necessarily expect to be fluent in these concepts, talking about stuff like, you know, mass incarceration and the new Jim Crow and, um, you know, various problems with our system of policing in the United States. So I, in a lot of ways, I think it's actually very encouraging because I've been, you know, sort of interested in these issues for a while. I'm not an expert. I'm not a policy guy on this. I couldn't write you a specific paper, but, you know, I, I'm generally on board with these things. And, you know, just watching on social media, you know, you have people writing Facebook posts about how we have to defund the police or whatever that I would not necessarily have expected to write that a few years right. ago. And so that's yeah. encouraging. I, th I think we, we are actually maybe seeing an opportunity for some meaningful change rather than just uh, sort of saber rattling. One of the things I think is really interesting is the reactions that everyone's been having at this time and, and some of the really ineffectual flailing we're doing in addition to, I think, some really meaningful work that's being done. So for every time that the Minnesota uh, Minneapolis City Council votes to, you know, commit themselves to trying to reshape the Minneapolis Police Department, we also have some really strange stuff coming out of people who are... I want to be careful here. So it's very good that the police officers who were involved in, like, the killing of George Floyd are being arrested, and that should be the norm. When you straight up right. kill someone, a police officer should be arrested for that. And I'm yeah. all about that. But speaking as a defense attorney, I've always found some stuff really funny because, of course, usually as a defense attorney, I'm opposed to the, the police. But in this a few occasions here, we have moments where the police are defendants. And so I can't entirely turn off my defense attorney brain. And so I've just noticed some really odd stuff where the same people who were saying we need to have, and rightly saying we need to you know, dismantle the carceral state and change mass incarceration, some of these same folks are also saying we should throw these officers in a deep, dark hole for a million years. And I just, I, you can't really say both of those things. <laughs> Right? right. Like, I do yeah. believe that these guys need to come to justice and, and be, uh, you know, dealt with accordingly. I, I'm not saying they should be, there should not be any consequences here. There should be. But we have to radically rechange how we think about prison. The problem with prisons isn't that we only put in the wrong people. The problem with prisons is prisons, right? Right. Like, if prisons are bad for murderers and so on who aren't cops, they are still bad for people who are cops. And this is kind of a nebulous thought, but it's just, it's something I, I found kind of strange in the discourse here is, you know, like a couple of cops who got fired in, I think it was in Kentucky for being caught on a body cam saying just horribly racist things. And so they got fired, which is good and not necessarily what would have happened a few years back. So I'm glad that happened. And I saw some Twitter users calling for, well, they should be prosecuted for a conspiracy to commit acts of terrorism or whatever. And I'm like, no, they shouldn't. <laughs> That's not, <laughs> that wouldn't support that charge at all. <laughs> like they're being right. jerks and they're bad people and they absolutely should not be allowed to have a badge. But like there's, you can't just, ugh, I don't know. That's just, uh, you know, the problem with our carceral state and prisons, like I said, is the carceral state and prisons. It's not just that we're targeting the wrong people. So there, that's my initial soapbox. What did, what, what else did you, were you thinking Well, right so <laughs> I think, yeah, I think I, I was curious about your thoughts because, and you've mentioned some of this stuff to me, and I, I, I find it refreshing only because I, I think there's, there's a line from Les Murray, uh, who's like a, <laughs> a total reactionary, but one of, I think, 20th century's greatest poets, He's an Australian poet, um, a Catholic who died only a year or two ago. And um, he's got this great line where he talks about, like, you know, nothing a mob does is clean. And so I've been thinking a lot about not only the actual polit political reality at stake, but for someone like me, I feel like, who's inherently interested in, like, honestly, questions of aesthetics and questions of 
truth and questions of like almost, to be honest, inherently abstract qualities that aren't necessarily always 100%, you know, <laughs> as grounded in politics as I mean they should be. Um, I think it's, it's interesting to see like, um, on one hand, my belief in like mass protest has been has never been higher. You know what I mean? Like I feel like I actually like I I, I went to a few Denver protests, which I actually wasn't going to share with anyone, and maybe I will delete from this podcast. Not because I'm I'm ashamed, because I just feel like there's a weird like you know wanting to claim the honor of that that I don't want to fall into. Because um, I didn't do anything; I just showed up as a body. But it does feel like showing up as a body, especially in this crazy pandemic, and especially during this kind of like bodiless internet existence it has a lot of political power you know what i mean and i feel like that has become completely inarguable that like making your body you know a factor making your voice a factor not even of course like violently but just literally presence matters but at the same time i feel like what you said like in some ways there's more kind of bs floating up um than ever and some of it's really good like i i think as much as I find a lot of Instagram stuff annoying right now, like I'm actually not sure that like the changes I want to see happen to policing or to whatever else could happen unless, yeah, like my neighbors, you know, or my friends who just heard about Black Lives Matter or whatever, right? I, if, if they weren't now lecturing me about it <laughs> on Instagram, <laughs> like we probably wouldn't be getting anywhere. You know what I mean? Like, and so where I find a lot of that behavior frustrating, I also think it might be necessary. But I, I guess I just, you know, I think I, I also wanted to ask you about it, you know, and we probably can't get into it for too long. This is, I think we should talk about the book, but I found, I found myself going a little insane. I feel like, you know, that there was not a lot of outlet for like taking a second to think about things. Um, not even like what was right or wrong, but like there was literally so much information and there still is coming our way that it, I, I find people like, kind of having these knee-jerk reactions and it feels like actually being thoughtful and purposeful is more important than ever you know two months ago people like my wife or my one of my good friends who's an icu doc like they're they were kind of being consumed by covid stuff it seems like they should have the right to keep caring about covid things and not be lectured by instagram moms and at the same time, I, I don't like I, I think that we should form a cohort of at least Instagram moms plus more to change policing. Do you know what I mean? I do. And I, I think that the, the fact that this is happening in time of pandemic is a lot of why I think this is such a bizarre time. You know, there's a lot of questions about whether or not the protests and such were helped by the fact that we'd all been cooped up for two months beforehand, you know, which is not to say that uh, people were bored and that's the only reason this happened. But I do think there was a lot of sort of pent up nervous energy that was uh, harnessed in this. You know what I mean? I, I think that would be I think you'd be wrong not to acknowledge that. Right. One reason everybody could get out and get in the streets is because they hadn't been doing anything for a while. And so when something that was absolutely worth protesting came up, everyone had the energy to do it. One of the things I think is really odd is the way so much of this is happening on the Internet, which is always true, but it's really come true to me recently. You know, I, I live in a small county, um, you know, and I have, I have a lot of friends here in town, but I obviously haven't been seeing them much because of quarantine. And so most of the interactions I've been having have been with, you know, people at the grocery store or people at work, um, which mostly happens over the phone. And there's a real disconnect between just this constant screaming I see on Facebook, which I've contributed to, I mean, to be clear. Uh, uh, yeah, same. And sort of the day-to-day -day life I'm seeing out here in small-town Minnesota that makes me feel like this is all kind of invisible to me 
Right. And so I'm never sure how, what I should be doing directly, which is not exactly the most important question facing America. What should Bill Coberly be doing? But it, it, it does make <laughs> me feel really upside down. And also in my capacity as a public defender in a county where there's five of us, right? I'm also aware of the fact that if I go out and get arrested protesting and that makes the news, that's not going to make my clients' lives easier. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, it's yeah. actually going to be counterproductive for my clients. if I, It's really hard for me to find a jury pool because everyone has it in their head that I'm some sort of lunatic socialist i am a lunatic socialist but i don't necessarily <laughs> want the jury to know that um yeah, not, not to no. say that i'm that important but i just it, it is a small small enough county you know that i could really make things complicated and so i, I really haven't been sure what i what or if anything i should be doing during this time which again is a unique unique thing for people who are public defenders in small town counties which is not most of us but it, i think it's made me right. feel particularly anchorless and particularly unclear on what exactly i should be doing to try to take advantage of this momentum. No, I agree. Well, and, and I do, I do think the, um, so if I had one original contribution to make that I feel like other people have not said the way that I, I wish they would is I think COVID is clearly a factor, but I, I think the COVID factor is more about a betrayal of trust than it is just people being bored or lazy. Right. So like basically, um, Americans were asked by government, usually at the local level, right to hey stay at home actually only at, the, only at the local level right like technically only states and towns and stuff put people on lockdown right and so they were asked to stay home and overall like from some of the data that i've seen at least everyone sort of did when the when you know or they were now it's summer everyone's not but you know like at first the lockdowns were effective in the sense that americans were like yes we're going to obey the rules and then <laughs> toward the end of that lockdown stuff you know, everyone saw an agent of the government put his knee on a man's neck, a man who cried out for his mother and cried out that he couldn't breathe, and the guy died. And I feel like that, you know, so like maybe that shouldn't have been an awakening for a lot of people, but I think that it honestly, like the the back-to-back of, hey, okay, we got to stay home because we're, we're trying to like save our neighbors, and then, oh, it seems like, the police just wantonly murdered one of our neighbors. I, I, I think that, that that's okay, that that's a factor. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like, it's not, it's not in any way undermining the legitimacy of the complaint. It actually highlights it, right? That like, this is about the people trying to keep the government accountable and actually, you know, you know, using its, you know, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's pent up whatever to do so, which I think is good. Um, but I think it's funny because as much as I've been encouraged by local actions, I think I've been discouraged by a, a lot of discourse, even as I think the discourse is probably a necessary like cloud of nonsense that will trail the real engine of change. Does that make sense? I know, I'm sorry. I know I say that phrase a lot, by the way, but does that make sense? <laughs> I do think it makes sense. Yeah. So I don't know. This is an exhausting and strange time, and uh, but I, I do think it really is encouraging. I mean, there are more serious measures to uh, end qualified immunity than we've had in a long time. You know, I, I can't imagine that we're going to get the full no, sort of defund the police thing we should be getting, partly because most of that, or a big chunk of that, involves ending the war on drugs, which is going right. to be harder to deal with. Um, but, you know, that's... <laughs> I joke all the time that if we ended the war on drugs and if the cops didn't feel like they had to be asset protection for Walmart, I would have a lot less to do on a daily basis. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So, you know, a lot of a lot of what we need to do to really 
abolish our corrupt and, and horrible system of policing doesn't actually happen directly in the police station. It happens in other places. Right. And so I don't right. know if that's going to happen or not. But I do think we have a real opportunity to change some things. And I think there is some real momentum, which is, is very encouraging Which to is see. really good. No, yeah, overall, I think it's a really like, exciting time. But anyway, we, we did read a book. <laughs> it has nothing to do. It has nothing to do with what we've been talking about. But it did feel, for me at least, I, I feel like I, as someone who has been skeptical of Twitter and so forth, I do think public conversations matter. And that's the whole point of the podcast. And um, so if you had to skip it, you know, like Lo Siento, I guess. But we are going to talk about Michael Shabon's book now. Which, by the way, Bill, do you, you want to um, give us maybe any intro to the book? Or do you have anything else you want to tag on to the last conversation? No, I think that's probably, I mean, unless we're going to do a three-hour conversation about policing, which I think I know. probably we don't need to do. I mean, maybe you and I can have that conversation, <laughs> but like I, said, I really don't feel like enough of a public voice about the, you know what I mean? Like, no, I don't, we, yeah, I don't we don't matter. No, no, we, we say, definitely, so. yeah, we definitely don't matter as public opinions. Yeah, agreed. So anyway, pressure your congressperson to uh, get behind Justin Amash's qualified immunity bill. That's what I would tell you to do, everybody. It won't fix everything, but it would be good. But now let's talk about Michael Shabon's The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, which has a police officer in it, I think, at some point, but it's not really about the police at all. So Shabon's uh, The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay came out in 2000 and won the Pulitzer Prize for that year. Uh, it is about a couple of comic book writers in the golden age of comics, which is the late 30s and early 40s. Uh, this is the time of Superman, of early Batman, of the beginning of Captain America. Uh, it's about a couple of fictional comic book artists there uh, who are both basically poor young Jewish men in Brooklyn. One grew up in Brooklyn, the other grew up in Prague and escaped the Nazis uh, through a sort of a convoluted path that involved him hiding in a casket and going by way of Japan. They're cousins, and they end up working together. And one of them, uh, Sam Clay, or Clayman is his actual name, but he goes by this pseudonym Sam Clay, is already a fan of American comic books and has tried his hand at drawing them. He's not very good at it, but he's interested in them and he's full of ideas. And he enlists his cousin Joseph Cavalier, who's the, the boy from Prague, to try to start selling some comic books here, mostly so the two of them can make some money, but also because they're interested in the idea. Cavalier is a very gifted artist. He had studied at an art institute in Prague. And uh, so they start basically trying to make comic books, which uh, initially, just as a quick fun thing, becomes something they're selling into the, the sort of novelty gag magazine that <laughs> Sam works for. Uh, this guy, Anna Paul, who basically sells whoopee cushions around the nation, agrees to start including some comic books in his whoopee push cushion advertisements in the hopes that they will sell more whoopee cushions. Um, the main hero they come up with is a guy named The Escapist, who is an escape artist who is... Uh, part of a sort of a secret society of people who go around rescuing people from trouble, both uh, prisons, you know, if they're thrown there by the bad guys, or like economic trouble, it's pretty broad. Um, and he becomes very clearly an anti-Nazi figure from literally day one. Um, Shabon kind of steals the cover to Captain America 1, which has Captain America punching Hitler in the face, and says that that's what the escapist does for his first cover. So th these comic books take off really well. They both end up actually doing quite well for themselves. Obviously, they don't make as much money as they should because this being early comic books, the people who actually did all of the work mostly don't make any of the money from it. Um, this still happens today, but not quite as badly as it used to. Um, and the book follows as they, the two of them go through this newfound success as they try to, as they end up creating a, uh, a couple of figures of significant cultural importance. As Joseph Cavalier is trying to get his family back from Prague, and it's just a series of tragedies. Uh, as his family are all basically killed by the Nazis or, you know, just by the circumstances they're living in in Prague. Right. 
and as Sam Clayman, among other things, tries to come to grips with the fact that he is, uh, he's realizing that he's, he's, he's a gay man uh, living in the 1930s and 40s and early 50s in America, which is not the most fun time to be doing those things <laughs> or to be, to be a gay man. Um, Joseph Cavalier eventually goes to war in World War II in a really kind of a bizarre sequence I think we're going to have to talk to where he doesn't really do anything. He's trying to vent his just the furious anger he feels and what he really ends up doing is spending a lot of time in an Antarctic outpost listening to the radio and then basically murdering a German scientist who wasn't even clearly an enemy combatant. Um, when he comes back, he's such a mess that he kind of hides and it's fine. The final, he hides for like eight years and the final sort of re- uh, reunion between Cavalier and Clay ends up being a lot of at the end of the book is because there's a third other very important character who I really should have introduced before now, uh, who's not in the title, but is very much the third most important character, a woman named Rosa Luxemburg Sachs, uh, she starts out as Joe's girlfriend, and she is also an artist. She doesn't start out in comic books, but she does eventually become a, a big name in the romance comics that were a real thing in the 40s and 50s. And for a while, they were bigger than superhero comics. Not originally, but then in that sort of divot there, and the comic books uh, kind of crashed in the 50s. Uh, she starts out as Joe's girlfriend, and they're actually, uh, right before he goes to war, she actually becomes pregnant, but then because he kind of vanishes, she marries Sam, actually, mostly as a way to sort of stay in touch with each other because of all the horrible tragedies that Joe's gone through. And Sam raises Joe's son, Tommy, as his own. So there's a really lot of interesting tension between the three characters. Uh, it's a really beautifully written book. And I think that's probably all the summary I'm going to do right now. What am, what am I missing for the summary, Joel? No, I, th- I think you, you really did hit it. It's a book that, in my notes, like I call it maximalist. You know, it's, it's kind of the classic, like, James Joyce maximalist tendencies is to just like put as much in as possible. Like that's part of the effect you're going for. And um, so I think sometimes it's hard to talk about like what's essential beyond like the three people kind of going in and out of each other's lives. Right. It's like Rosa, Joe and Sam, like kind of their circling of each other and of success and art. Like that's kind of like the through line of the whole book um, in some ways. But of course, like it's a book that literally spans twenty years. Um, we have a whole section in Prague, <laughs> where right, you know, yeah, Cavalier not only escapes from Prague, but he escapes right in in the box with the actual golem of Prague, the famed folklore, you know, Jewish golem that protects the city at times of need, or did at least in like the sixteenth century or whatever, fifteenth century, or I can't remember which, sixteenth or seventeenth, anyway. Um, so yeah, I don't think you're missing anything, but only in the sense that like, for every book, I kind of say this sometimes, but like, you know, a 630 page book is necessarily maximalist in some ways, but this one with its like a plethora of lists with its, uh, dogged (laughs) desire to hit on like every single art person in New York from Salvador Dali to Orson Welles. It even has a heavyweight champion, Max Ernst, I think was his name. I can't remember. Right. But like, it's just, this book is even for a 600 page book, it wants to go over the top, right? Like that's part of the point of the book and point of the comics is that you're supposed to overdo it as an art form of itself. So for the record, Max Ernst is in the book, but Max Ernst is a like an artist. Max Schnelling is the heavyweight. Oh, champion. Max Schnelling, yeah. Max okay. Ernst is also in the book, though. So, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> I, I knew I wasn't getting it right, but yeah. So no, so I don't think you missed anything big. But I, I guess the, you know what I what I would pivot toward, which is what we we kind of talked about a little bit, is like I, I have a lot of notes. You've got notes, and I, I have some big write you know some big ideas on the writing and on the you know the theories he has floating around about art or whatever else. But truthfully, I think we both finished this book and thought, 
that was really good. And then like, oh shoot, I should have more thoughts than that because I have to do a podcast on it. That's that's accurate, right? <laughs> I would agree with that. I mean, it's a good book. I don't have a single... I mean, I have criticisms to make, but it's definitely a very good book. But for whatever reason, I ended it and I was like, I'm going to have to really think about what we're going to talk about because I didn't come away with like a lot of grand theses I wanted to bring up or questions. Um, I think I think one reason maybe for me at least, and I, I think probably this applies to you as well to some extent, Joel, but one of the things the book is doing is it's really trying to make you fall in love with comic books and the people who wrote them, right? Yeah. Um, which it's very good at that. It's just that I was already there, uh, <laughs> you know? So uh, to some extent, it was sometimes preaching at the choir. It's like, did you know that these, like, all these young Jewish men writing in the 30s and 40s were really cool? And I'm like, yeah, Jack Kirby was, like, maybe a saint. Like, I, I know. Like, yeah, uh, he's like a hero. Which, again, it's, yeah. not, it's, not, it's, it's not a criticism of the book, right? <laughs> but maybe maybe impacted some of my my immediate reaction to it. But does that make sense? And, and would you agree with that? No, I, I totally agree. And actually, so, I, I mean, I was going to ask you if, you know... I figured the answer was in some ways no. If this book wanted, like, if you left, if you, like, whenever you put the book down, did you want to pick up a comic? Because I, you know, like, so in our year in, our year of reading review we did in January, like, we spent a lot of time talking about Tom King, right? Like, we're obviously people who care about comics, and you especially, I feel like, are still in touch with it in a way that I'm not. But actually, I feel like my not being in touch with it, that's probably where the book did do some of its magic for me, is I, I would often, like, put the book down and be like, man, I should like I should go pick up some of my better comics that I have in the house because it it does kind of make you want to just linger in them um which I will say I mean which I don't actually I guess which I don't really do with comics enough I feel like that's one of the things I mean he did challenge me the more casual comic reader of the two of us is that I usually read comics really quickly you know like I I go through them fast as opposed to like trying to actually like you know sit with the pictures and kind of absorb anything but I also think I do think that like and I I don't really know enough of the history of like you know comics being kind of grabbed from lower art into higher art. I mean I kind of know like that a lot of like the whole idea of camp and the whole kind of rescuing of low art from this kind of high art anxiety or hierarchy. Like, a lot of that started to happen in the seventies, you know, or even the sixties, but definitely the seventies and eighties. Like so I I don't think that like Shavon I don't think he like rescued comics from anything, of course. But it, it does feel like that it's it's obviously it feels <laughs> not coincidental that this book came out in two thousand and then of course, you know it was only you know a couple years later, um, one year later that X Men came along, I think. But basically, of course, that's the decade where the big comic movie adaptations happen, right? Like that's where the blast off of Marvel comes, you know, eight years later or whatever. And it feels like if Shaban is, even if he's not making that happen, he's certainly putting his finger on a renaissance that was already happening. Well, I think that makes sense. And, you know, and comic books were in kind of a weird place in the 90s. Um, I don't think there are very many people who will tell you that the 90s were a good time for comic books, um, at least not big two superhero comics. Um, there's certainly some good stuff. But there's a lot of really it was that's the era of Rob Liefeld and the sort of walking refrigerators instead of people. Uh, right. Um, right. <laughs> so but I do think it's interesting that this does. I mean, you're right. X-Men is the same year. It's 2000. This is right when we're going to have this sort of change in how popular consciousness thinks about comic book stories and i think and we are going to get a lot more really cool stuff in comic books not long after that um you, you said did this make me want to pick up a comic book it did make me want to go back and read a lot more of the golden age stuff Same. i actually haven't read a ton of the golden age batman or captain america or like namor the submariner who was a huge hero for marvel at the time uh for the record which is I always think it's really fun because <laughs> um, it is it is much weirder than what we think of. I've read a fair amount of Silver Age stuff, so like Spider-Man and that kind of thing. 
uh, or, or you know, original Spider-Man. But like Namor spends a lot of time fighting, you know, as a sort of ambivalent hero, sort of almost an anti-hero. Like he he declares a war against like white men because they're getting in his way and stuff like that. He's, he, it's a much weirder time in comics, and this really I think helps to highlight how this time sort of before some of the 1950s backlash against comic books is being all about corrupting the youth into becoming, I don't know, gay sex criminals or whatever, uh, <laughs> that they got really worried about there for a while. Uh, for, for like, yeah, for like yeah, 50 it, years, it, they were worried about that. <laughs> yeah. Like it was a much weirder time in comics than I think we sometimes think about. Like I tend to think about a lot of the weird stuff being in the 70s. Honestly, I need to go back and read more of the Golden Age stuff because there is a lot of really fascinating stuff. There's a lot of trash too, of course, but that's true of any really right. interesting period of art. So <laughs> yeah, no, and I and I thought is I, I mean what I what I always think is interesting about the high low art nonsense is that I I don't actually think anyone like I mean I think people disbelieve in the idea of like there being inherently. I think we've come to like disbelieve the idea of there being inherently better mediums, you know, or media, you know. Um, but of course, like in some ways, high low art is is often just you know shorthand for like good and bad, right? <laughs> like that this this person was artful and this person was not. And I I do think it's interesting how like um like like Michael Chabon he seems to be like part of the movement that says hey this low art high art distinction is nonsense. But in some ways, like the way that he praises and articulates the talent of Joe Cavalier especially, I actually feel like what he's really just saying is like, no, no, this is its own kind of high art. I'm not dismantling the idea of there being art and there being trash. I'm saying that things that we think are trash are often very, very good art. Um, which in some ways it feels like, a, like a, I don't know, like almost the right argument for a lot of the comic book stuff because... You know, it was popular and it was, you know, a lot of, you know, it was kind of <laughs> badly printed and whatnot, but the actual talent going into it was, you know, beyond the scope of its recognition. Uh, whereas sometimes it's like, well, I don't know. I think there's a slightly different argument happening, which I, I like, to be honest. I, mean, I like the argument he makes. But yeah, I do think, I do think the enchantment with comics is definitely one of his goals. And I, but I also think it's one of the things the book itself is trying to do, like... You know, he could have just told a story that was very realistic, and this one is, but like a very realistic story about, you know, an immigrant kid and a Brooklyn kid, you know, Jewish cousins who create a character, but he doesn't, right? He makes the kid from Prague who <laughs> escapes in the coffin of the Prague, the Prague golem. He makes the kid also from Prague a escapist himself of some kinds, right? He makes um, the kid from Brooklyn, Sammy's dad, is an actual strongman. He calls him the strongest Jew in the world before he dies, Right, so like, there's a way in which the outsidedness of comics is continually put into these two's lives, and it's like it's a very realistic way in which it comes into their lives. But you know, like the girlfriend that Joe has, who becomes Sam's wife later, kind of confusingly, <laughs> if you haven't read the book. But she, you know, she's not just like a girl who's introduced. You know, Joe first sees her naked on a couch in an apartment he's broken into, and then meets her later at a party, the same party he goes to with Salvador Dali, and at which he goes to her bedroom upstairs, and the bedroom's covered in moths. Right? There's like there's this outsized quality to every aspect of the story that I think is Shabon continually saying like pulp deserves to be treated you know as artfully as possible even when i'm talking about other people's pulpy art at least that's how i read it i, I think that makes sense i do think you're right there is a uh, there is a pulpy quality to the, i mean this isn't this doesn't look very much really like pulp fiction but it, it, it borrows a lot from that and it does a lot with the 
like you say, I mean, the stuff, particularly that happens to Joe Cavalier, all the stuff that happens to him is kind of larger than life. Um, he's kind of a larger than life figure. Right. You know, he, he, after he comes back from World War II, he secretly rents an office in the Empire State Building and lives there for like 10 years, <laughs> yeah. just drawing one comic book, not talking to anyone except occasionally meeting the kid who is actually his son, you know, and giving him magic trick lessons. Like, it's it's a really <laughs> sort of bizarre, wild thing that I, I think he really sells in the context of the character, partly because that, at that point, Joe Cavalier is such a broken person because he just had such yeah. a horrible preceding 10 years that you could believe him sort of going mad and doing something like this. But also, it, it starts to make sense. Like, these guys drew, drew these outlandish and absurd and wonderful over-the-top characters because their lives were also kind of bizarre. Like, it, it makes sense to me. Like, I, I don't know. I like it a lot. I think it's a really good book. Yeah, well, I, I just like that. I mean, like, you get the, if you get the issue of comics, you always, like, people talk about, right, that, you know, like, oh, you can see how the vaudeville you know, exaggeration played into this part of it, or you can see how this character played into the Superman or whatever else. And I, I thought it was a really simple and almost like really naive move that worked quite well was to just make it a part of everyone's lives. Right. Cause it kind of was like, even the stuff with like he getting, you know, him getting uh, Sammy getting hit in the nose or sorry, Joe getting hit in the nose by someone who either is, or looks like Max Schnelling, Schnelling, um, Schnelling. Is that right? Schmelling. Yep. <laughs> yeah great nailed it um (laughs) (laughs) um but like so even even stuff like that like or or how they meet orson wells because there is there is a way that you know interwar new york city was both very decadent and wild but of course it was a much smaller town than it is now right like it was at the time i think probably not much bigger than denver population wise i looked at it at one point but i totally forgot and you know so there's a way in which the outsidesness came from this um, parochial and a- aspect of everyone's life, right? Like a cousin from Prague came and lived with his cousin in Brooklyn, and they will both want to be artists because it's a city of dreamers and yada yada yada. But I, so I, it, it, that could be very naive, is what I'm saying. Like to have you know the, the sources of comics be so directly in their lives. But I actually found it a very effective way to just you know give you the history through character, basically. One of the things I think this book does really well and that's really interesting is it has a very kind of fun and peculiar voice, which I actually think is very similar to the last uh, big book we read on this podcast, which was Susanna Clark's Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, in that uh, the book is, is will literally talk to the reader at one point when describing uh, all of the, the guys who are holed up trying to come up with like seven heroes and 12 pages each in like a weekend. Uh Shabon just says something like, you could see the idea bouncing around in Joe's head. Like, it's actually how he phrases it. He'll say, you could see this, you know, talking directly to the reader. And there are also footnotes, or, or not, not necessarily f- some footnotes, but also some asides throughout the book, as though these were actual historical people that you already heard about, and this is just kind of dramatizing stuff about them. It's like, even actually the very beginning of the book doesn't open in... I mean, the book basically opens in 1936 or whatever, but it technically says years later, when remembering the creation of this character at comics panels, Sam Clay would say this, right? It'll, it'll have that same sort of bizarre space of being like a real historical text with footnotes referring to other things. Right. Even though it couldn't possibly be that in universe, right? Like it doesn't, it's not like this is actually, he's not passing it off as though it's an actual history written in like right. 2000 about like Bob Kane and Bill Finger. Um, but it, it's just it's such a weird liminal space that I actually really enjoyed, and also that was very funny because we just saw somebody else doing this. I, yeah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the same reaction. I got I got to the first footnote and I was like, "Are you kidding me?" 
<laughs> like how many big books have footnotes? Like I, I knew that it was popular among a few people, but I'm starting to wonder like how widespread this phenomenon is. And the, the, like the, the, you know, the vocative tense, like the direct address stuff, that stuff I, I really liked a lot. And I'm, I thought the footnotes were fine too, but I, I couldn't believe that back to back we've had footnoted pseudo historical novels that are like, they're like historical novels in the world that they're describing. Right. Um, yeah. Which is which is just funny. I mean, I guess it's just coincidence, but it also was very odd. Well, I think it goes towards a lot towards making it more uh, feeling very present. You know, when he can do stuff like that, it feels sort of unpretentious most of the time. He occasionally will get like, all right, that metaphor. I'm not sure that was quite that was a bit much there. Mike, <laughs> but, uh, you know, but it, I, I think generally it comes off as being sort of unpretentious. And also, because again, one thing I keep we keep talking about is the way this book is is about comics as a medium and about why you should like them. Uh, he makes several sort of polemic arguments about comics throughout the book uh and it, it always fits well in the in the voice of the characters it's not quite like it's not like tolstoy's war and peace we read a while back where he will just stop the book and lecture you for a while about give you an essay works. in the middle of a battle uh, scene yeah <laughs> it's not like that but he will you know he'll respond to some criticisms or he'll make some points about how or art criticism or philosophy um and i think that by by situating this as though or by sort of occasionally aping this image as though it's a historical text um, I think that makes that flow a lot more easily, right? It's yes. a lot easier to imagine him talking about him making his argument for why a certain era of comics were really cool when he's already sort of presented this as though these are things that have already happened, right? Right. It's like yep. one of my favorite moments in the book is when Joe Cavalier is actually forbidden from having the escapist punch Nazis anymore because he's been just beating the heck out of Nazis for like 76 issues of the escapist. Um, and the publisher says, you got to stop doing this because we're, we're trying to sell this to some German speaking folks and it's just becoming a mess. And between that and some other things that have gone on in Joe's life, he just like blossoms in creativity and does this like 24 issue run or 14 issue run. I forget, I think on the escapist, which is just held up as being some of the best, uh, comic book work of the forties. Right. And the way he describes it is he, he just, he, so, so he, he kind of backs off rather than having a, a close personal of Joe, like drawing them out or saying, I really kind of want to do something different. He adopts a sort of art critic posture, right? Where he says, if it wasn't for this run, it probably wouldn't have been thought of, but it is. He did this in one issue. He did this in one issue. It was really cool. It did all these things. And I think that that makes it feel, not only did I enjoy reading it because it meant that this really was written by somebody who knows a lot about comic books and really cares about them. It was also fun because it, I don't know, it just made the book flow more coherently together that he had this sort of slightly ironic distance that he could occasionally adopt when he wanted to make a point like that. Does that make sense? Oh, I totally, no, I, th I think, um, he, and he talked, I, I didn't read a lot about, um, the author or the book itself outside of like, you know, a few things here and there, but I mean, I think Michael Shabon, he he's talked about that this book was kind of him trying to do a lot of things he wasn't sure he could do. Um, and I haven't read anything else by him, but I mean, he was a, he was like an out of the gate star, right? So he goes to an MFA program young, he publishes his MA as, or M, maybe it's MA at the time, but he publishes his creative master's thesis at 25. Um, and he's like immediately like a literary star, but I think he was, you know, he's very much like a, a realism literary star. And, um, this book he talks about like, you know, um, doing different perspectives, doing omniscient voice, trying a lot of different things he never tried before. And I think the book is, again, it's about like it's about how you make art from going kind of over the top, right? So like that's what comics are—they go over the top. He, he even one of his better polemics about comics, as an aside, is he talks about you know it's sort of the beauty of the human body in motion, even though that human body is tinted, right? It's the naked human body tinted. That is the beauty yeah. of, of art. And so, and of course, his book 
itself, I think, is about trying to do too much. So like he, he's always like so the voice that you're talking about allows him. I think sometimes he misuses it, but it allows him to get in these incredible little asides. Um, not only where he like zooms out like you're talking about, but where he zooms in. So one of the you know secondary characters who's not really an antagonist, and actually the one thing about this book we should talk about in a second, I said there really aren't any antagonists, but we'll come to that. But he zooms in on the Empire uh, Comics executive Shelley Anapol, right? This kind of like business guy, and, and not only gives a description of his two daughters, who he calls his two dreadnought daughters, which is incredible, but he also later, um, it, like, because we're now talking to you know Anapol, Michael Shabon jumps to like a little flashback of Anapol in the bed with his wife, and he can't stay still because he's anxious, and his wife is barking at him shark be still <laughs> be still shark <laughs> and i like i i think that not only those are those great writing moments but i think he um has adopted this voice as basically um his license to do anything you know and i think so that's it's, it's great that you know oh you can now do whatever you want but i actually think he overall uses it really well to kind of um to kind of make the too muchness its own forward momentum, you know what I mean? Like so, like the, the like the details alone kind of drag you on, right? The list, the list momentum of like he just keeps saying more, and you kind of just keep reading because it's this kind of unending inertia. But I love, I I do love the shark be still. It's one of my favorite little jokes. <laughs> like this guy, this huge guy who can't sleep at night, and his wife just yelling, "Shark be still." I do think I will say it's probably maybe it's too early for this, but maybe not because we spent twenty minutes talking about something else. I, I think the last half of the book, some of these same instincts we're talking about, I think they go wrong a little bit. And we can circle back to other stuff if you want to, but I, I think that you also agreed with that, right? That he kind of goes off track maybe a little too much once he gets into the World War II stuff and beyond. I do think the back half of the book is not nearly as focused as the first half. And I, I think he has, a, he has a bizarre focus. Like I think we spend too much time with some of the really wild stuff that happens in World War II and not enough time... Like, I don't know. I, I think he's got details sometimes in places that I, I got it and didn't need them, and then I could have used more detail in some other places. Like, I, I would have liked to know a little bit more about what Sam Clay's life really looked like in that time between yeah. when Joe left and came back. I know we don't need all the details, and I also know that it was kind of just sad and not all that effective, right? But right. I, I lost track of my timeline a little bit there, and I feel like some of the spaces we could have... We could have moved away from Joe's horrible adventures in Antarctica a little bit afterwards. But I don't know. I would agree, though. I think the back half of the book is... It is a little too broad in some places, and it's it's got a strange focus that doesn't always work perfectly. It's still good, but it's just not as good as I think. Yeah, no, I, I actually think you summed it up really neatly with too broad, where I, I think if the joy of the book is how it zooms in and out, the truth is actually for me that that's part of the joy. But like his best scenes are always intimate, I think. So they're sort of happening in conversation or in real time. Those are his best scenes, I think, without a doubt. And I, the one I think of most is. Not most, but that caught me off guard was the incredible scene where um, Sammy has to go home for dinner with his mom. Then he gets ditched by Joe and Rosa, and he, you know, he one of the actors from the radio show he's helping to write, sort of, not really, but you know, one of the beautiful male actors from the radio show ends up having a drink with him and coming back to you know Sam Clay's mom's house, like this dingy little apartment where they're having like bad food, and it's this glorious like, in kind of real-time first date, right? Because this guy will become Sam's, you know, 
first actual lover a little while later. But but I, I remember that the scene stood out, though, because it was like a really extended period of just being in scene. And I, I thought that's what he did best. And so I think if the joy of the zoom out is that you kind of get to change things up, it's only, a, it's only a, a joy in the sense that it's like a little swerve. When it becomes kind of the meat of what's happening, which even the stuff in uh, World War II with Joe, like um, we're introduced to Joe's platoon and other things that happen almost like just after the fact, right? So when, when we see Joe in World War II, we hear about a game they all play to see who has to sleep outside with the dogs, you know? And um, but we don't actually see the game happening and we don't actually see joe's sadness from joe's perspective until almost you know halfway or more through the world war ii section he finally opens the letters from rosa that tell him about you know her and sam's life for the last three or four years and so i just thought like that the perspective problem is that like the meat of the momentum and of the joy of the novel are still the intimate scenes and like the further joy of zooming out is just that it's like a it's like a compliment but it shouldn't be the main package and i thought in the second part of the book he made it the main package so i wanted to talk about one other thing he does this i think three times where he starts he, he opens a chapter and he doesn't immediately tell you what you're doing so it's kind of disorienting but you realize that he's actually writing out as a sort of literary fiction chapter the backstory of one of the heroes that joe and sam are coming up with right yes he does this twice for sure and then he does it once in kind of a subversion of it with uh the closest thing to a villain the book has which is this sort of pathetic neo-nazi bomb guy who gets crosswise with joe neo he's not a neo-nazi he is a nazi this is they're not yeah they're they're yeah he's he's the the first nazi (laughs) uh and the first time he does it because you've had joe and sam talking about what kind of hero they need? Because they just need to come up with a hero, right? Because they're still just really trying to right. get paid. Like, um, And they're talking about it. And they have a fun conversation about why does Batman do things, which I think you noted this suggests says, oh, so Batman is insane, right? <laughs> and Sam says, no. <laughs> so I mean, great. Yes, but they don't really say that. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so great. Um, but uh, the next chapter then is it just starts t- describing the backstory for the escapist. But again, it's it's in... The universe of the comics, right? And it's really fun because he deploys all of the same sort of litfic tools he's got for doing this. Like he does not actually adopt a G Wiz Bam right. Pow style to write this. And he does it again the second time when he's describing the backstory of Luna Moth, who is this sort of trippy, really surreal character who's who they come up with later for their like all female comics section who does like magic and uh is blessed by a goddess of samaria to do stuff and it's really i think he does a good job of interweaving them because he'll just describe again using you know 21st century litfic text right except when he's doing a quote when he will give a quote which sounds exactly like it's from yes yes the 1940s right so when luna doll luna moth first realizes that she can do all kinds of magic and she does bad things to these sort of gangsters who tried to kill her earlier she's you know using this like i can't i can't even mimic it but that exact sort of like gee whiz clippy uh dialogue <laughs> i think it's really pretty cool and i also enjoyed it in the third time he does it when so in a scene which actually is super contrived and i think is a problem with the book joe is wandering around new york trying to fight germans because they're killing his family uh and it's a re- that's a really good bit right but then he looks up and sees a sign in the window for like an aryan league and breaks in and there's nobody there, and he finds out that this guy has been reading all of Joe's comics 
uh, for a while because he's keeping an eye out for like Jewish conspiracies, but then he ends up really liking them. That all makes sense. But like him breaking into the house or the league and finding out that this guy is a comics fan, I thought was super contrived. But anyway, Agreed. once we move past that, uh, this <laughs> this Nazi type um, is just a pathetic, sad little man, right? And he becomes a huge fan of all the escapist comics, even as he understands that they're written by like a Jew, and so he's skeptical of them. And so he starts to fashion himself in his mind as one of the escapist's villains, the saboteur. And so in his mind, he basically is the saboteur, and he's going to go bomb Joe Cavalier's magic show. And that chapter starts off just like the other two, it's a description of the saboteur and his habits. And it's only about halfway through you realize this is not Michael Shabon telling you about a comic book character. This is what a character is uh, in the story is actually thinking as he's getting ready to go do a horrible thing. And I thought that was a really effective what, way to do that. No, that was one of my favorite payoffs. Cause I, I, so I thought, yeah, first, you're right. The, uh, <laughs> the way that these guys come into conflict is contrived. But I, I, what comes of it, though, is, is, like, is worth everything, if only because... The two chapters that are just about um, Sam and Joe's creations, right? That are about uh, the Escapist and Luna Moth. They're they're good at, like without anything else, they'd be great. Like because you nailed it. They do all these literary fiction techniques to talk about comics, which is kind of an argument in and of itself. Like it's, sorry, it's an argument in action for taking these seriously, right? Like Michael Shabon is literally rendering these pulpy things into literary fiction as a way to make them serious or give them the seriousness they deserve, while also, of course, playing it for laughs because both of them are really funny. <laughs> I think like you play it so straight that, of course, you start talking about you know um, the escapist panoply of assistants, including like big you know Professor Big Al, who's you know, yada yada yada, right? It becomes funny. But then the payoff is that, yeah, you don't know that the Saboteur's chapter isn't just another in-world comic story. And as soon as you do, it's just, it's a, I don't know, it's everything. It's like it totally encapsulates um, an argument against basically fanboys, which apparently has been the case since the 1930s, you know, which I, I thought was effective as well. Because, again, the book, I think, wants to touch on every aspect of the comics world or our own world that it can and well, you can't talk about comics without talking about toxic fans, I think. And I, and you know, and here Michael Chabon gets it out in the front of everything. But I do think it's interesting that this, like you said, that this guy and his sister, ironically, are kind of the only true antagonists of the entire story, which I thought was like I kept expecting, um, you know, maybe Cavalier and Clay to have like an acrimonious breakup, you know, like because of course who wouldn't, right? And at one point he even teases the abrupt end of the Cavalier and Clay partnership. Yeah, that's a really great, uh, yeah, because you're like, oh, God, they're having a falling out, and that's not really what happens. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and, it, and, well, and so in some ways, like, I feel like, you know, the last several years, I, actually, honestly, I feel like every review I read for the last, like, 50, 60 years, people are always talking about, like, male friendship and female friendship and the difficulty of finding good texts on either, and I, I didn't read a lot of reviews of this book, but I, it, what struck me is that for all the other things it does, it is one of the better books, or at least it's one of the more committed books to showing male friendship as a non-competing thing, um, which is usually what people talk about for, like, female friendships. But truthfully, like, I can't think of another book that does quite this level of, like, these guys were friends instantly and friends forever. But that's, like, that's the thing that happens in life, and I, I think it's a hard thing to do on paper, and I think he kind of accomplishes it, right? That, like, all of their tensions are, are real and drastic, but they themselves have a kind of committed, you know, friendship that 
that lasts even war and even abandonment and even one of them raising the other one's son <laughs> and whatever else happens. So, which I liked. I love that element. I thought that, you know, having the conflict be other than just them getting mad at each other was totally a, a more engrossing decision. But I, honestly, if, if I had a criticism of the book, I don't know that it adds up to anything I can totally take home with me. Do you know what I mean? I, I think there's... Yeah, I get that. And I, I do think that's partly because one of the things that's odd about this book is it's so deeply enmeshed in, obviously, comic books, right? And the, the creation of comic books, the writing of comic books, the social role of comic books. It actually kind of quits being about that, though, mostly, right? Once Joe goes to World War II, comic books are everywhere, but they're a lot more just like what the char- characters are doing for their day job, right? Right, true. Like, Joe's comic book is just the big artistic project. There's nothing about it. You know, his, his one about the Golem of Prague that he starts working on in the Empire State Building. It's a cool thing, but it's not really... It's, it's kind of divorced from anything. We don't see him finish right. it or publish it or anything like that. And uh, most of the comics we see after that point are the romance comics that Rose is writing. And there's a lot of interesting stuff in there, but it's, you know, it, it gets kind of divorced away from the day-to-day work of, of being a comic book writer in the 40s and 50s, which is fine. But I think it leaves the book a little bit anchorless um, yeah, for the second half. Yeah, I think you're right. Just by the... By the time the book ends, we've you know had a satisfying and successful character arc for our characters, but you feel like it really shouldn't be over yet because you feel like you missed a lot of details, and there's also a lot of stuff that clearly is going to happen that you think would be interesting. I, I, it kind of stops at an odd time, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, well, I, so I thought, to, especially for a book that is so encyclopedic in its tone and approach, um, I was surprised that we, like... Like, even the tone of the book, I feel like, you know, it starts out with saying, right, like you mentioned, um, you know, Sam Clay used to tell stories about this incident. And I'm surprised it didn't, you know, within the book and not within, like, the extra material for the book, but within the book, I'm surprised it didn't take us back to the future, which I know is maybe, like, its own clumsy bookend. But um, I definitely thought there was stuff unresolved that I wanted to know in a way that the book, I think, was preparing me to know. Even as actually like the whole satisfying character arc, I, I think one of the, the things I was most impressed by um, is that I think Shaban he really didn't he didn't throw in the white flag on like trying to make you know the move to 50s suburbia from like <laughs> bohemian 30s and 40s. He he really tried to to make it a a three dimensional character study still right. Like I I felt like this was one of the more interesting artists become boring <laughs> mom and pop suburbia people that I've read in a while. But at the same time, I, I, what I kept wanting was like when we had this whole section on Tommy who Sam and Rosa are raising, but who is Sam, sorry, who Sam and Rosa are raising, but who is Joe and Rosa's son. We see this whole, like this whole kind of section from his perspective of when he meets Joe and stuff. And I honestly, like I would have cut all of that. I don't need any of that. I don't need Tommy's perspective in this book at all for me. Like, he, and what's hard is I think Shabon does really smart things, like especially paragraph to paragraph. But I just didn't need it because if I'm if there's not going to be any comic book anchoring, I need my three main characters to anchor me. Um, and actually, like I would have loved to see, honestly, Joe in the closet for more, like making his masterpiece, you know, and talking to the night guard or whatever else. I think that would have been a more interesting way into the the whole question of his son than from the son's perspective. I hadn't thought about that, but that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's one of the few, I, I, well, the one section I had, so like, um, 
So I think one of the things that relates, relates to all of this is um, when I say like he's good paragraph to paragraph, I think in the end, like his good writing almost betrays him, right? So um, we start out one of the chapters ends, I should say actually, so one of the chapters ends with like, oh my gosh, look up there, someone's going to jump. And we didn't, you know, we thought no one was going to, but now it's like, oh, Joe has actually gotten into the escapist costume, kind of a long story. <laughs> tell you how that happens and he's gonna maybe do like a a fake suicide jump from the top of the building basically right and so we end on that note and then we start the next chapter with like kind of these side characters and it's supposed to be i think a very like kind of comic and literally comics-esque scene where you have a bunch of orphans and a father you know like a priest you know watching this guy maybe kill himself maybe do a you know um a magic trick <laughs> with rubber bands which is kind of hard to follow actually what he's literally doing um, <laughs> but so but so like he, so he has so michael chavon has these like three paragraphs that i think um cause more disorientation than anything else they do but it has a line in there about um the orphans slow dull dark submarine of their lives in which they were the human cargo had abruptly surfaced to watch the scene. And I think that he writes stuff like that and he says that nails it. And the problem is that that so much good writing overwhelms the actual good writing we care about, which is like the chapter should clearly start with the next paragraph, which says atop the thick concrete parapet of the 86th floor, like a bright jagged hole punched in the clouds balanced a smiling man in a mask and a gold and indigo suit. And that's 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 how you open a chapter. And, it, and, it's, and it's not how he chooses to. And I, I'm getting kind of nitty-gritty because I actually think, like, the failures of this book are directly related to its successes and that it's a really thin margin. And too often in the latter half, I think he's lost sight of what's essential and just decided that, like, what the only thing that's essential is that he doesn't cut down too much right that like the, the too muchness of everything has become the point to the extent that it's it's kind of collapsing in on itself that that's how it felt to me at least it's like he has so much good writing that it's actually be obscuring the best writing i think that makes some sense i think that's also one of the problems with the world war ii section which we haven't we should probably talk about a little bit so during world war ii joe so, so joe just joins up up and joins the navy because he's spent a big time in, a big portion of time in the book gathering a bunch of money together and sponsoring several Jewish children to get on a boat and leave Prague and come to New York, including his younger brother, uh, Thomas. And then a U-boat sinks the boat. And it's a horrible tragedy. And it's really pretty shocking, actually, I got to say. I was I knew it wasn't going to no, go well, I, yeah, but no, I didn't think bad. it was going to. I thought he was just going to be stuck there and yeah. probably die in the Holocaust, which would also be horrible, right? Don't get me wrong. But there was something about the, the you know, he's going to be fine. He's coming and no, the boat was sunk by a U-boat that I wasn't expecting and was yeah. really... Really good. Uh, I mean, horrifying, but really good. <laughs> no, totally but, agree. So Joe just, like, finds out this happens and just, like, walks off into the sunset and joins the armed forces and so on. And he wants to go and he wants to go kill Nazis. But what actually happens is he gets assigned to this base into Antarctica, keeping an eye for other German presence in Antarctica, which you might be thinking, I don't remember there being a significant Antarctic theater in World War II, and there wasn't. Uh, it's clearly <laughs> a pointless job that no one cares about that might, you know, be some minor influence on the war but nothing that anyone's going to care about at all due to some sort of horrible carbon monoxide accident with the forge uh, forge it's not a forge he, uh, the stove the like heating stove yeah basically his entire platoon dies except for one other guy and so they end up in this sort of manic 
uh, maddening six or ten weeks or something like that. More than that, even, maybe. Long period of time in the Antarctic winter with just the two of them and this one dog uh, listening to the radio. And it's a pretty good bit, right? Eventually it comes out that the only thing the other guy cares about is his airplane, which has been damaged at some point. And so he starts putting, trying to (laughs) refit the canvas parts of his airplane. And at first you think he's hunting seals, and then you realize what he's actually done is skinned all of the hunting dogs that died, or all of, like, the sled dogs that died from the carbon monoxide, which is kind of a horrifying image, I gotta say. No, it was, yeah, Uh, that part was good in all the worst ways. (laughs) And so this is, and then it ultimately ends up with them going to this German station to try to kill the one German scientist who's there, because they've had a, a different catastrophe, but a similar sort of thing, where there's only one, there were only four or five germans to begin with and four of them have died and the only guy who's left is like he's I mean, he's in the german military but he's just like a meteorologist or something like he's not and he you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> he's, he's not a serious yeah. threat to anybody and so joe and this other guy go there the other guy dies en route from an, a burst appendix and then joe is not going to kill him but there's a misunderstanding and he does and he feels horrible about it and there's a lot of really wonderful moments in there but it takes up like 60 pages yeah and it's like, okay, so what you what you did is you got really excited about writing a World War II novel, and you wrote 60 pages of pretty solid World War II novel. The problem is <laughs> it's in the middle of this other book. <laughs> yeah, no, and I totally agree. I think you need to cut about half of this. Now, what, I have, what do I... I have not written any Pulitzer Prizes. What do I know? But <laughs> I just... I, in terms of, like, the quality of the book occasionally being what causes it trouble, I think that's right. Because it's not like I could point to any paragraph in there and say, this is a bad paragraph. That's not it. It's a very right. good, like, little novella. It's just that it's not actually an end in itself and it probably should have been trimmed. Well, and I think the danger too is like as the reader, I mean, I, cause as the writer, what I want to lose some of the, some of those moments he captures like, so cause of course with this omniscient voice, he jumps to the German scientist perspective. Right. And it's yeah. sort of this beautiful moment of like, here's this guy, he's gregarious. He's made a mistake. He shot at someone he shouldn't have shot at. And then like, he basically dies thinking, ah, I'm a hypocrite, you know? And it's this kind of like beautiful slash comic, actually a very George Saunders esque moment is how it felt to me. But from the reading perspective, I like, Later in the story, toward the very end of the novel, you know, Sam basically asks, you know, Joe, like, you went to kill Germans, did you kill any? And Joe says, just one, it ruined me. Like, I, I like, I, I, if I was writing this, I would have experimented with basically not showing any of Joe's adventure and having him actually disappear. I, I, you, you couldn't have gotten away with it. You, you would have had to have something in there. But right now, there's definitely too much, um, especially because what we care about is Joe being sad, which is actually put in the background for a lot of the World War II stuff, and two, how it affects the rest of the novel. Because the one part of the World War II section that I loved, for sure, is that when he, uh, when Joe opens, he's been he's been not reading letters from Rosa um, for years now, and he finally opens all of her letters, and we, the reader, find out along with Joe that instead of getting an abortion like she thought she was going to, or, or we thought she was going to, Rosa has had a baby, <laughs> his baby, married Sam, and they've sort of like made this little life together. And I, I thought that was like, it made total sense, but it was also this kind of beautiful little gut punch where like you didn't know if you were happy or sad right along with Joe. And for me, it's like, if that's kind of why this existed, that and to give him a reason not to come home because he kills someone and hates himself... Like, yeah, you, you needed maybe, like, two chapters, right? Like, those are, that's two incidents. But I agree with you. Like, the rest of it's not badly written. 
and even the way his platoon dies is really in, in, you know ingenious but i just at the, that point it was like there's also these chap or these paragraphs and paragraphs of like you know countries making different claims to different parts of antarctica and honestly, like, I didn't love that stuff even in the Antarctica books I read that much. You know, like, <laughs> there's also a way, since we're talking about poor Shabon, who's great and this book is awesome, and the stuff at the end about Sam being a father was very sad to me, which I'll get to. But since we're talking about problems we had, so obviously the book is written in this very visual style because it's trying to not only ape or at least kind of mimic some cinematic, comic y you know, stuff. But um, I think he's just committed to, like, the rhythm of it and to, the again, the too muchness of it. Like, there's just figurative language everywhere. But what's really weird is that, like, sometimes the figurative language, and this is always true for me in any book, like, a lot of times the imagery, it doesn't help you see anything. It actually makes the scene less clear, right? So, like, if I told you there are two buildings over there, it's like, okay, they look like, they, you know, you have a picture of buildings. Where if, it's, if I say there are two buildings shaped just like forks on a dinner table you're now seeing a dinner table with forks, not two buildings, right? And he does that time and again. Like, he has this one, it's a great it's great language, but actually the visual, I think, is not effective, where he says, um, the view out of the windows was pure cloud bank. Got it. A gray woolen sock pulled down over the top of the building. On one hand, I actually love that, but I think he piles up those kind of images so often that the literal scenery, to me, just kind of goes blank and i'm and maybe I'm not, I'm not a very visual reader anyway who knows but i i felt like that was also a way in which the too muchness eventually turns against itself and could have been saved by like that kind of language being used to describe joe's masterpiece comic that he's writing for 10 or drawing for 10 years like when he turns his eye toward that kind of stuff towards actual visuals i feel like um the strengths become strengths again and the second half of the novel just didn't have the same control as the first half. Which makes it sound a lot more negative than I felt, you know? It was a good book. I just didn't... Uh, but I wanted to know why it didn't add up to more for me. And I think it is because you lose the thread of these three characters too much in the last half. Although, like I said, when Sam... At the very end of the book, Sam, you know, he chooses to leave his family after he's basically outed on television by senators investigating whether comics corrupt youth he's outed as gay by a senator <laughs> in 1952 or whatever but it also gives him the release to just leave his life but he goes in to see his son who's joe's son and he lays on the bed trying to have a nice moment and his son in a classic like perfect kid scene is like dad you're too big go away um, yeah, you're squishing me. Yeah. <laughs> it's so perfect. Cause I, that's how it is. Like even now, like, I, you know, my kids are much younger than twelve. But like every time you try to have a nice moment, your kids are like they like you know, like fart or something. You know, like it's it's horrible. It's like it's like a bad. <laughs> it's honestly it's like bad slapstick. It's like oh baby, are you okay? Daddy, go away. Whoa, I'm comforting you. <laughs> Be loved by me, you know. And so that's perfect. But I also like I, and I have my own like you know like obviously being a father I have my own stuff right now but I found it really meaningful that Sam chooses to go away and actually it kind of brought into relief to me that like I wanted more of that from the entire second half of the book and we just didn't get enough like in some ways the answer was to cut a lot and in some ways the answer was to write a lot more I, I do think that you know the book is the amazing adventures of Cavalier and Clay but I, I do think that Cavalier is the protagonist and yeah Sam Clay is the deuteragonist and that's that's right that's right word deuteragonist I have no idea, actually. Look that up. I, think I've, I think I've... I think I've... one of them. 
Yep, second importance to the. I'm the best. That was great. That That was really good. This is all staying in the podcast because you need to know that I'm both very smart and incredibly self conscious all the time. (laughs) Yeah, that's some. That's some. That sums it up for the podcast in general. I think. Anyway, I'm I'm also sure that's not how you pronounce it. But anyway, he's the second main character uh, with Rosa the third. That's very clearly true, and that's okay. Like it's fine. They don't have to have equal billing. No. Uh, they don't have to be equally sized parts just because they have equal billing on the cover. But I do think that, you know, Sam's whole journey as trying to come to terms with himself as a gay man in as a, as a Jewish man in New York in the 40s is really fascinating. And he's got a really sort of interesting dynamic where basically the first time he tries to sort of live life as a gay man and not super embarrassed about it, this horrible thing happens where right. the police raid the house they're in and... A series of very bad things happen, and Sam is actually like sexually assaulted by one of the federal agents. It's really horrifying, um, and so he just kind of clams up, and apparently lives his whole marriage with Rosa in these sort of weird friendships. But it's not clear if they're ever actually consummated, right? Yeah. Um, and I think it's a really fascinating character study, and he mostly skips over it. Yeah. Um, yep. Like, there's actually a deleted scene from the book. So the copy of the book I have has three or f- two or three short stories and a couple of deleted scenes. And one of the deleted scenes, I think, is right to delete. It's a very good bit where Joe Cavalier goes to show and tell, basically, at Tommy's school. It's actually a really, really good bit, but I, I agree that it's too much. But th- there's another one, which is him, Sam, sort of saying goodbye to one of these men that he's got some kind of friendship that's more than a friendship. But again, maybe neither of them admit that that's what it is. You know what I mean? Right. Like, it's really not clear that this is actually like a like a love affair. It may just be a sort of homoerotic friendship where neither of them can actually make the first move. Right. Um, and it's a scene with the two of them at a diner and it's a little too long, but it's got some really good stuff in it. And I would have liked more of that in the actual book because as it is, I think particularly Sam's journey gets a little shortchanged at the end because we want to, like, like you're saying, we spend too much time with Tommy being interested in magic and going to see his dad, which is, again, they're not bad scenes. No, but, but yeah. Well, and I, I think, yeah, I think Sam gets short shrifted a little generally, period. I, I think I agree with that. And I, I also, the, but partly I think that, like, again, part of it's that Shaban's strength has come through enough that I wanted more of it, which is that um, he really doesn't take the easy way out when it comes to Sam and Rosa building a life, right? Like, he doesn't. He doesn't punt on any of the ways in which they've copped out or the, the ways in which they're not happy or like, you know, all the usual strife that comes from like kind of having a fake marriage <laughs> or whatever else. Except that, like you said, they're friends. There's a companionship there. Like when Joe sees them together, he realizes they're not in love, but that they are a couple, right? That they're an actual couple yeah. who are married, who have lived together, who have basically they've built something real from a lot of fake things, which is one of the returning motifs of the book that I think is good is like, he talks about, you know, the ways in which, um, Sam Clayman, of course, not an accident, Sam Clayman and Joe Cavalier are kind of golem makers, right? They're investing life in these inert objects. And that's kind of the essential art goal, but it's also what Joe thinks of Sam and Rosa as having done with their lives. They've taken these disparate elements and tried to breathe life into them. And I actually thought that that was a much more interesting read on it, is to say, yes, on one hand, the last, like, 12 years of Sam and Rosa kind of living this fake life in suburbia when they're both truly bohemian weirdos, it has kind of destroyed them. (laughs) On the other hand, like, they've they have attempted something honorable, something that's like about them protecting each other and not just hiding, which is a lot of what it is, but about them coming together to try and 
you know, scrape the scraps of their life into something at least still worth living. And I, you know, I, I just thought that was a much more uh, complicated version of it than I thought it was going to be. And I also like, I mean, just from a story perspective, I, I feel like I've been on a run of novels lately that really do feel like um, abortion is the most like complicated choice to happen from getting pregnant. And it was kind of a, a relief to be like, actually, like what is just as complicated, if not much, much more complicated is having a child and not like not only like in life, but narratively, right? Like, what do you do with a character who wasn't a mom type character who becomes a mom? And I think he does a good job with her. And I think it's a harder challenge dramatically than just like her staying in New York City and Sam going to L.A. right when Joe leaves, right? That they try and build this life together instead was was more interesting, I thought. Yeah, no, that was a, it, was a, it was an interesting idea. And I'm with you. I really enjoyed the portrayal of Sam and Rosa's sort of marriage, not marriage. There is, they're having a conversation, Sam and Rosa, after Joe has come back and they, you know, they know he's back. And they're trying to figure out, like, what do we do next, right? And they're talking. I think they're lying in bed talking. Where Whenever they're in bed, Sam just starts writing down all the zillions of ideas he had. Because Sam's very much like a Stan Lee type. Like, he's not really the guy to execute on the ideas. But if you want someone to just throw you 800 pounds of spaghetti at the walls, he's the guy. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> that's that's um, perfect. <laughs> but, yeah, she says, you know, what this is... I don't know if it's the same reaction to what happened to, to Joe's family. Is your reaction and mine? You know, you get up, you go to work, you have a catch in the yard with a kid on Saturday afternoon... How sane is that? Uh, just to go on planting bulbs and drawing comic books and doing all the same old crap as if none of it had happened. And Sam says, good point. And then he just, you know, sounding profoundly uninterested in the question. And then the narration says, he was through with this conversation. As a rule, they tended to avoid questions like, how sane are we? And do our lives have meaning? <laughs> the need for avoidance was acute and apparent to both of them. <laughs> Which I think is good, because it's also very clear that, like, Rose is very clear on the fact that she and Sam did not get married because they're in love with each other. Like, it's not, there's no right. confusion about no, that at yeah. all. She's aware that she's his beard, you know. Yeah. But I don't know if they ever say it out loud to each other. Do you know what I mean? No, I, I think uh, they don't. Yeah. It's it's a fun dynamic because, again, it's it's not neither, – none of them are exactly upset about it either. You know, it's not like, oh, we're trapped in this loveless marriage. It's exactly. the choice we made that was the right choice at the time. And it's made our lives complicated, but okay. And, you know, I feel a little strange about the fact that my husband maybe is going out with other people. But on the other hand, I knew what I was signing up for. That's fine. But they don't ever have, it's like they had a long, it doesn't appear that they had a long conversation where they were like, okay, so here's what we're up to, because they had this need for avoidance. And I just thought that that portrayal of that marriage was excellent as a really fascinating relationship. Well, no, it's, it's what you said, actually. I think you said it perfectly. It is like maybe the only interesting, loveless marriage I've read in a long time, because it's, it's a marriage that has love. It's just not the yeah. love you want for a marriage, which I think is actually, honestly, like, it's unique because of course like you said she's his beard and it's sort of this fraught thing with like him replacing joe which he talks about early in the novel it talks about that you know sam felt like he wanted to be joe he wants to be tracy bacon he kind of wants to like have his own manhood enhanced by these people he's with and so he takes joe's place and sort of maybe like a fulfillment of that impulse but also, I think in real life, um, there are plenty of marriages that descend into friendship, right? Like, that's a pretty common thing where it's like they're together. Like, honestly, I think of my, well, and actually, I think of people who are kind of in this generation. I think of my grandparents, right? Who kind of like seem to get along and be companions, but there is sort of a question of like, <laughs> at what point did they stop being romantically interested in each other <laughs> because right, of the way yeah. they, t you know, but, but I feel like, but there's still a partnership and I feel like not only is he capturing a interesting loveless, loveless marriage, which is hard to do period, but he's also capturing kind of a generational attitude toward these things, which usually can be, I think 
downplayed as like these restrictive, self-hating people. And it's like, yeah, they were that. And they were also kind of weirdly honorable as well. Like it was both, you know? I think not always, but I think it could be. And I think the both is what novels are supposed to explore. So, all right, man, I don't, I don't know that I have a lot else. Do you have a lot else? <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about the sort of broader, like expanded Michael Shabon universe that's happened. I just think this is kind of interesting because this is, it's not, this is a book about uh, genre stuff, but it is very much a literary project. Uh, it is a lit fic book. It won the Pulitzer, you know, you would not. Right. Uh, I, th- I think it was read by a lot of genre fiction types, but it was just because of what it was about. It is not a genre book. Well, you know, literary fiction is a genre, but you know what I mean. <laughs> um, and uh, yet it's had this kind of second life of expanded universe stuff like you would expect to see from like a popular fantasy hit. He published two or three short stories in different markets uh, re- related to this, like the continuing adventures of, right? Two of them are about sort of what Sam got got up to towards the end of his career when he's being the sort of aged comic book creator going around to comic cons and stuff right. like that. And then later on, there's actually Dark Horse Comics in like 2006, I think, published a six-issue series called The Escapists, which is by Brian K. Vaughn, who is a comic book writer who is generally pretty well received. I haven't read too much of his stuff, but he did a Doctor Strange comic that was pretty important and that I mostly like. Uh, but this six-issue series is both about the people who are sort of rebooting The Escapist as comic book writers at some point later on. And then it also includes actual issues from, I mean, you know, issues from this series that right. the people in the story are writing. Right. Right. And so it manages to be both more of exactly the sort of thing that this is while also actually being issues of the escapist, right. Which had not, I think previously been done. So the escapist now exists as sort of a comic book character as well as being a character by Michael. So I just think this is really fascinating the way this book is having this kind of, Second Life as a collection of other things. There's been a movie that's been theoretically going to get made for like 20 years. I'm sure at some point they'll get it made or as an HBO series or something, maybe. And I, he said that he's had some ideas for a sequel and he might do it at some point. Right. I do think that it could potentially support a sequel. I'm often kind of skeptical about sequels because, I mean, most people are. I don't think that's <laughs> unique to me. But I, I, I think this actually could do it. Also, if nothing else, I would like to know what Frank Miller did with The Escapist. You know what I mean? Yes. Oh, that's a great <laughs> like, I, point. <laughs> I kind of want to know what the 70s artists in the in the universe of this did with that character. I think that would be fascinating to see. But anyway, that's also just because I'm interested in comics. I think no, I, I think yeah, I I think the book is a is a weird crossover hit. Like you even said when you wanted us to read this that it was on your radar because it was like about, you know, comics in a certain world in which you're very fluent. And I'm pretty fluent in that world. But I, but of course it was on my list because it was like Michael Shabon, one of the literary fiction guys I should read. You know what I mean? Like, which is, and you and I, like our list, you know, our lists have multiple purposes, okay? <laughs> we yeah. are men of, we are men of many wants and needs and interests. But, <laughs> but you know, but to the extent that like you mentioned it to me as a book that like caught your eye partly because of its comics connection. And that to me, like when I first put it on my list, like seven or 10 years ago it was because of just it was a big important literary book and so i i I kind of love that it's had an afterlife and i also like that it it really speaks to shabon's interest like i think you know um he is someone who's been very happy to work in hollywood and been someone who like he, he basically like has lived out this whole idea of like oh there's not high art and low art like a lot of people can't live that out partly because of opportunity but 
he has, right? He's been given the opportunity to do screenplays. Um, I know he didn't like it, but like he was a showrunner for Picard, of all things, right? And um, it's very impressive to me that he's kind of like lived out <laughs> this uh, this turn towards genre that happened later in life. Because I think he wasn't really a genre guy, even though he was always a nerd, until he started writing some short stories in the late 90s. Yeah, and from my understanding, it wasn't until even after this book came out that he started doing more of that. I actually think a lot of the stuff he's written since this is at least more genre. Yeah. So I think the next bit... That I think the biggest book after this one he had was the Yiddish Policeman's Union, which is, I mean, it's alternate history. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's basically sci-fi, you know, though, yeah. Yeah, that's my understanding. I haven't read it, but uh, that's my understanding. Yeah, he's actually, he's, he's collected at least once in the uh, weird fiction short story collection that I'm almost done with. Right. I've been working yep. on it for like two years. I saw that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I saw that just recently because I, lo- I was looking at that and I could believe it was like one of those like, you see a green car and then you see eight, or you buy a green car and then you, sorry, yeah. you see only green cars. It was like, oh, he's in this too? Like, oh my gosh, this guy's everywhere. <laughs> I actually only just read that story. It's 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 fine, but it, it's it's kind of a it's interesting. It's a perfectly good story, but it's kind of a look. Look, I read Lovecraft and Edgar Allan Poe, and I can do it too. Which, to be clear, is all any of us ever do. Try yeah. to write that kind of stuff, but it's just kind of funny because uh, like the, the, around that same time period, you're getting people do a lot of really cool stuff in the new weird like China right. Beagle doing his sort of thing and this very new and different. And that's just like I'm writing Pulp Fiction again, which is he does a good job. It's a good story. It's yeah. just kind of funny. So. <laughs> That's mean. I have not written a story as good as that. I want to be very clear. He's a better writer than I. That's not what <laughs> no, but he, but he is the kind of guy. But it, it matters to like, like his uh, whole charm, because he does make certain difficult things look effortless. And he is the one of the more classic examples of like crossover success. He's actually someone, and this isn't quite true. He's too big for this. But he almost falls into that. What I think of as that, like the recent history memory hole for young writers so like i knew who he was kind of but i hadn't read anything by him which you know like for someone who's 10 years older than us who's had my life history is probably much less common you know what i mean but he's in that he's in, he's, he's kind of an example of an interesting phenomenon which i feel like people who have just who are like who are like 10 years or 15 years past their success like there's sometimes the most forgotten when it comes to being taught in like a writing classroom or whatever, right? Like there's a short story writer who's one of the most famous in the world, Lori Moore. And like three or four of us in my fiction cohort at like a, you know, big fiction writing program didn't know who she was until someone mentioned her. Cause the professors, I think basically think they don't have to tell us about them, you know, but they, you know, they're not as famous as they used to be, which is less true for yeah, Michael Shavon, not- but they're not. They're not quite. The, they're not the new hotness anymore. So they don't have to go on to that. But they're not quite established as classics. And they're yet. not yeah. classics no, yet. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think honestly, I mean, unless you've got more, I I think I'm about out to be honest. I you know I, I like the book more than it probably sounded like I did. <laughs> um, but, but part of that's because I like so many individual small things, and even more than some of the other books we've read. I think to keep talking about what I liked really is literally just like, and this moment was smart, and this moment was smart, and that moment was yeah. funny. Um, he is funny, which again I think is hard to do. He's a funny writer. Um, He's got some very early on. Uh, they're trying to sell the the concept of of uh, making comic books right to these these businessmen and this is other guy i can't remember his name he's involved and he's just kind of in the way like he's never really useful for anybody he's made his own money selling like bad dime novels kind of stuff oh yeah he gets involved in this project because he's involved with their publishing and who are these kids they're nobody and uh he's giving them some pushback at first and sam has this been i can't get the words exactly right where he's he's got a murderous desire to create this thing and nothing not even like the squishy flesh of this man would get in the way (laughs) this is great like because sam's like 19 or whatever at this point right 
one. If I can't do this because you're the way, I'm going to kill you with an axe. Anyway, that's kind of the vibe. <laughs> it's just a really, a really funny moment because obviously not seriously going to kill anybody. It's just it's a very good. I don't know, it's a good joke. Well, and, I, and along those lines, um, you know, they kind of, they do their first uh, draft of a comic book with a bunch of um, Sam's friends and so forth in a little apartment. And it's, you know, a bunch of young Jewish guys in the 30s all hanging out. And it, it, he, he really nails not only like that 30s patter, but that certain like Brooklyn humor among young men that you see kind of parodied in movies that, of course, was probably just real life for a lot of those guys. And I think he does the dialogue justice most most of the time, to be honest. Um, which I can see why he writes, you know, why he wants to write for film and stuff. The, the novel, before even I feel like HBO miniseries were a huge deal. Like this novel does read like it was made to be adapted to HBO. <laughs> but yeah, it was good. I mean, it's a good novel. I think you know, I think it was overall. Overall, I definitely what it definitely did is it, it confirmed that I should read more of him. But that also maybe like I, it, you know, he's probably not gonna. I'm probably not going to come back to this book for a while, if if ever, maybe. I don't know. The only other thing I would say is I do think it's interesting. There's a so the hero in this book is an escape artist, right? The escapist. That's his whole shtick. Right. Um, there, I'm only aware of one major superhero who's an escape artist because it's kind of hard to make a series of plots about that. And he's Mr. Miracle, who was created by Jack Kirby later on. And Mr. Miracle is not a major figure in the Kirby corpus. But our boy Tom King did a <laughs> dynamite 12-issue run on Mr. Miracle about two years ago that uh, is high art. And it's interesting because at the end of this book, or t- about halfway through this book, Joe Cavalier talks about how he wants to get out of the standard like nine-panel layout that you were getting in comics at the right. time, right? Because for a long time, comics weren't doing varied comic panel sizes, right? It was you have nine panels a page, that's it, move on. And people haven't been doing that mostly for a long time, except it's one of the things that Tom King does best is going back to a very limited nine-panel uh, Tom oh, King and Mitch Garrett's yeah. is common. And of course, in this book, the escapist is a metaphor for escaping a lot of things. It's the escaping Prague, it's escaping the closet, it's escaping all kinds of stuff. And at one point, he makes it clear that it's also escaping rigidity and comics stuff. And I think it's fun that the best, one of the best things I've read recently in real comics is about an escape artist <laughs> hero who was trapped in a nine panel format. That's not anything <laughs> other than just look at this funny thing that happened, but it's a funny thing that happened. Well, no, but it's but it is you know you got you got to keep innovating, and usually to innovate you got to go backwards a little bit, you know. There's a lot of little other tiny little thing, little bitty things, but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do that. I think it's a good book. If you like comics, it's a good book. If you don't like comics but think you might like comics, I think it's a good book. I think it's a good book if you just like good books too. Yeah, I think, I think probably to, to be honest. Connection. No, I I think it yeah it definitely it, it pays off a lot of different interests. Um, and it's also, I will say, that's, you know, one of the other things that, like, I aspire to in my own writing is that it's a really smart book that is really, like, it was sort of a romp to read. Like, I, you know. Um, except, yeah, it's a really fun, yeah. really pleasant read. You just, yeah. you fly through it, and it, it does, see, like, it, it, you know, it engages your brain, but it also, like, it's fun, which is, especially right now, to circle back all the way, you know, um, to the beginning of the podcast where we uh, had a conversation about, you know, just the world. I, you know, I still think it's important for novels to do both, and I, I think this novel is is his argument in favor of escapism explicitly, right? Like Joe at the end of the book talks about people in the '50s deriding comics for being mere escapism, and he says, "I'm sorry, my life's horrible. What's wrong with having a half hour where I don't think of anything else?" And actually, that is a moment I want to highlight real quick because. When Joe talks about, he'll remember the half hour he read um, a Betty and Veronica comic the rest of his life. I totally get that. And I, I haven't ever seen someone maybe put it 
that well, or at least I haven't resonated with someone putting it that well in a long time. Because I feel the same way about, um, if not a comic book, certainly about certain books. Oftentimes, books such as, you know, Lord of the Rings, pulpy, sci-fi, fantasy, or otherwise. And also, actually, the other thing that I think of is video games. There are certain, like, half hours I've spent on a video game that I feel like I remember as part of my life that make them feel more important than the mere escapism I think they often can be. I think the novel is, you know, it's not only a good thing to escape into, but it does kind of justify the impulse to escape. So we haven't actually decided what our next book is. Uh, we did this upside down. <laughs> gosh, so we'll yeah. see if we decide and then I re-record this or if this is actually our ending. We'll see. It'll be a mystery. Um, really well. But <laughs> regardless, thanks for listening. We'll we'll let you guys know uh, what we're reading next, if not in a few minutes when we pause and I re-record. This is a very kind of fun kind of meta conversation. Oh, it's very, it's, uh, we'll very, it's very Shaban. <laughs> it is actually. Yeah. So, but if not now, then we'll let you know on Twitter or something uh, in the shortly uh, shortly after this. So uh, I hope you're doing well. It's a really weird time. Try to stay safe. Uh, wear a mask in public, you know. Fight the power. And, uh, yeah, you know, fight the good fight. It is... It is it a is scary a time, fight. but I do think it's an I do think it's an exciting time for a lot of reasons. So. Agreed. All right. Well, Joel, thanks for uh, thanks for doing this podcast as always, and I'll talk to you later, buddy. Sounds good, man. Bye. Bye. So we did actually decide what we're reading next. So I'll tell you now. What we're reading next is Charles Taylor's dense tome, A Secular Age, which came out in about 2007, and is about. You know, the secular... Yeah, mm -hmm. that's going to be a recurring problem we're going to have next podcast. But the secularization of the West uh, contrasted with earlier times in history when it was more or less assumed that everybody in both public and private life was some flavor of religious and specifically some flavor of Christian. We haven't read it yet. It's a tremendously influential and uh, famous book. We'll see if we think it's any good. So again, next up we're reading Charles Taylor's book, A Secular Age, it's something like 800 pages long, so if you're going to read along with this, you might want to do that sooner rather than later. And we hope to re uh, record that podcast sometime in September. I'll let you get back to the end credits music now, and thanks for listening.